Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Stride Power Podcast. My name is Evan Schwartz and I'm the host of the show. We hope you enjoy listening to our wide range of athletes, coaches, and experts in the running world. You can find out more about Stride at stride.com, spelled S-T-R-Y-D.com, or check out the show notes. Feel free to give us a follow on social media by searching for Stride Running, again, S-T-R-Y-D, running. Without further ado, let's get on to the show. Awesome. We are live, all queued up, back for another Stride for the Love of Running webinar series. As always, my name is Evan. I'm your host for this series. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in uh, right now. Today, we are joined by Dr. Sean Bearden. Sean, how are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, everything's wonderful here. Beautiful weather. Awesome. Cool. We're, we're super excited to talk today. Uh, we have a couple of really great topics, and I'm sure people have a lot of great questions as well. Just a reminder, if you are watching this live, please feel free to drop any comments or questions. Uh, if you're watching live on YouTube in the chat box, our producer, Gus, will be able to send them along to us. We'll be able to intertwine them or get to them at the end. If you're watching on Facebook, please feel free to drop a comment there as well. Uh, I would like to also remind anybody watching after the fact or right now, if you're watching on YouTube, please feel free to like and subscribe to the channel to see more content like this. Uh, so today we are talking to Sean Bearden of Science of Ultra. Sean, you have a fantastic introduction that I think people will be you know, super, super impressed uh, just to hear all your experience. So I'm going to go through that really quick before we dive into our topics today. So you're a current professor of physiology at Idaho State. You have a bachelor's of science in sports medicine from the University of Virginia, master's of science in exercise science and health promotion from George Mason, a PhD in exercise physiology from Florida State, and a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Yale University School of Medicine. You've run your own laboratory since 2004 and been heavily involved with the research and sports performance world. You host your own podcast, the Science of Ultra podcast, where you talk with scientists, coaches, athletes to bring valid, reliable, and actionable information to runners. You also coach athletes yourself from those just starting to run all the way to the top of the ultra world. Uh, I really, really liked this point from your website that you believe in training all facets to become a better runner and focusing on the joy and fulfillment in training. That was one of, you know, the inspirations for the name of this series is for the love of running. You know, we're, we're sparking this sort of webinar series as we recognize a lot of people are home watching more web-based content, but what can we do for the love of running? So that really, really echoed um, with me. Before we get into the topics uh, and after the introduction, can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, I think you covered probably enough. People maybe are already tired of hearing uh, some of uh, the list of things. Yeah, but basically, you know, you, you said it. I So I'm a professor, which means I teach and I research mm -hmm. and I coach and I have a podcast and I'm a runner myself and I, I now run ultra marathons. Maybe things um, to add the people that I teach are, mm -hmm. I, so I teach human physiology. Mm -hmm. I teach to about 500 students per year. Uh, and my, my main class I teach is human anatomy and physiology. Mm. So all of the future healthcare professionals that will be coming out of the state of Idaho, which is where I live, mm -hmm. come through our school and come through, actually have to take my class 
so all the people that are pre-dental, pre-dental, pre, um, everything, OTP, mm-hmm. TPA, med school, all of those are coming through my class. I teach all of them. And of course, my love is, is human performance and exercise physiology. So my research has been there. I, I jumped around a little bit when I, when I really got deep into the weeds of mechanistic research, mm-hmm. my, my focus was primarily going from bioenergetics, that is how the body uses energy, particularly in muscle, to, to how blood flow is controlled into muscle. Mm-hmm. And we took some tangents there, but really a lot of microcirculation, the tiny blood vessel type work, including some work in the brain um, that we did at, at NIH funding for and things like that. But really, my love has always been this, really talking about how people can thrive mm-hmm. and use sports and athletics as a mechanism for becoming the best versions of themselves. And I know that's sort of a cliched phrase, but you know, it, it works. It's real. Yeah. Uh, and that then that really brings us back to that point that you made about training the whole athlete and the whole person and running for the joy of it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have more hours in the day than the normal person? Because it seems like uh, just being a professor, just being, you know, a great podcast host takes up a lot of time and then coaching athletes and being an athlete yourself. Uh, do, do you find that uh, you become, you know, very, very organized uh, and kind of keeping things separated, even though the subjects of them kind of intertwine? That's exactly it. Yeah. You know, there 24 hours in a day is a lot of time. And of course, I sleep a fair percentage of that. Sure. Um, I don't I don't cut cut down on my sleep whatsoever. I still I sleep at least eight hours a night. Yep. But you're exactly right. And I, I love this phrase or this idea that uh, a, a huge part of the root of all of our problems come from saying yes too fast and no too slow. Mm. So I I say no to everything. And um, I also happen to be one of the laziest people I know, which doesn't sound like a good thing. But the reality, what it, what it means is that I just want to get to the point. Right. You know, just give me the real facts. Give me the point. Give me the, let's get to it. So I'm, I'm quick to cut things and I really get, try to get to the heart of things. So that helps me to be able to focus on these things that I love. Awesome. Yeah, we're glad you didn't say no to coming on the show because there are a uh, you know a ton of people that follow uh, you know your podcast, your work, your research and stuff, and uh, they happen to you know kind of cross paths with the Stride side as well. So people were really really excited to uh, hear that you were coming on. Just to give people a sort of brief overview of what we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, like the normal flow, we have a couple topics that we're going to dive into. And we have a couple questions from our side that we think might inspire some, you know, interesting conversation. But again, anybody that has any sort of uh, general questions, please feel free to ask them in the chat, and they'll be passed along. So topic number one, we had today was optimizing training in the current situation. And so uh, the first, you know, kind of angle that I'd like to talk uh, about this stuff from is your experience as a coach, but then also from the research side. Obviously, being in, you know, the the sports world, that medical side, you have some, I'd, I'd imagine, a little bit more knowledge, but then also a closer ear to the ground to athletes that are having to deal with real life, practical, you know, changes that they have to make to their training schedule. So. How do you recommend people train with uncertainty around their races in the future? And what kind of things are you telling your own uh, athletes about right now? That's a great place to start, Evan. And 
this comes to really the heart of my entire approach to to training, which is that we're trying to be the best whatever we are trying to be. In my case, and the people I coach, mostly it's runners. We're trying to be the best runners we can be for the long term. If we're always training to the next race, then we're missing the opportunity to be our best long term because we're going off on side trips. And that's a very inefficient way of getting to the long-term goal of where we want to be. So my approach is to always work in the big scale and take slight detours, that is with specificity of training, for example, in those final weeks before a particular race. But that never compromises the long-term trajectory and the long-term architecture of the plan. So in this situation, from just a purely coaching perspective, we are in an absolutely tragic time. So I don't mean to to diminish it at, at all, but just from the purely coaching perspective, this is a fantastic time because now we can really just protract our, our training and not worry about getting distracted by needing to 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 peak for races or or hone little things for races. So I think this is a great opportunity for anybody who is struggling and thinking what do I do now that I don't have a target to race for or to train for? That that, that should be the light bulb going off saying, "Wow, I'm hopping from lily pad to lily pad. I need to figure out how to swim and and know what my trajectory is." for the next two years, three years, four years. And for many of us, we hope decades. I I think somebody should, uh, somebody listening right now should take that phrase, the hopping from lily pad to lily pad, learn how to swim, put it on a t-shirt. Uh, if you do that, put the link in the, uh, you know, the chat and everybody can get one. Um, one question that I'm always interested in hearing about from coaches is when did you decide to get into coaching? Was there a certain time in your life or a certain experience that motivated you to try and offer up some knowledge or you know that skill of advising people? Uh, maybe even springing off that too, did you have anybody that was motivating in your past as a coach or a mentor figure that kind of inspired you? Yeah, I started coaching semi semi-informally when I was 16. So I played soccer. Soccer was my life. And, um, and I had a coach that, uh, indeed inspired me. I mean, this is somebody I look back on now and it's hard not to have tears come up because, um, I would do anything for him. He was that kind of a, you know, that kind of person. So, um, at that age, about 16, he said, well, I'm putting on some summer camps. And he grabbed a handful of us off of the team and said, you're, you're coming to work this summer. So we started uh, a little bit of coaching there. And then that progressed. And I started coaching soccer. I also then got got into and very interested in weight training and how weight training could, could help with sport performance. And so I became a, a CSCS, Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist and started working with with those sorts of athletes and developing power and speed in, um, in in multiple sports. But I stuck mainly with soccer. And then graduate school, everything sort of shut down and starting my own lab, that kind of stuff shut down. Come back then, and I, I wanted to get back into coaching and um, sticking 
were focusing on adults who are running just just seemed to be the place really where my heart was. And so that's what I've been emphasizing now for you know some some years. I haven't been coaching soccer in quite some time, but that's how it started. It seems like, uh, you know, at the root of it, soccer, when people normally see it, uh, you, you think of short sprints. And maybe if you're a middle midfielder, you're the one that's, you know, used to running around all the time. It seems like it's a pretty big flip to go from soccer to ultra marathon and coaching stuff. What was the sort of reason that you found, uh, you know, success and interest personally in those super long distance events? I think it's the mental side, the mental side of it. The, the knowledge that you can stop at any time you're done, you know, you can't stop in the middle of a game really and just walk off the field. Right. But, but you can, you can stop running your ultra at any time and you have to find the reasons for why you want to do this, why you want to keep going. Nobody's counting on you but yourself to do this. It's such a personal, although shared with other people running, endeavor that um, gives us the opportunities to explore the workings of our own mind. And I find that fascinating. And I still do. And I'll continue doing this as long as I do. And if that changes, I'll jump onto the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before that now's a great time for a coach because you have the ability to, like you said, protract out uh, a lot of stuff. So make those goals maybe a little bit more extended, focus on some of the things that you can maybe add in your training. If somebody, uh, you know, came to you as one of your athletes and they said, hey, now I have a bunch of time because I was going to run Western States and, and now I can't run Western States what should I do? What should I use this extra time to focus on? Could you give maybe one or two examples of something that people might not be thinking that they can kind of take advantage of in this time? Yeah. I think that if you have a little bit of extra time, that finally sitting down and doing the things that you've always known you're supposed to do, but you probably haven't done, which is keeping a bit of a diary on how you sleep and how you're eating. And are you doing anything to train your mind? I think taking a little bit of inventory of all of those things that you're doing that do absolutely go into helping you become a better athlete in addition to a better person, but a better athlete Now's a great time to work on those. You got an extra 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Maybe you start a mindfulness meditation practice, or maybe you simply start watching videos on people who talk about how to deal with mentally tough situations, that kind of stuff. So I think that's a great opportunity. The other thing though, to recognize about, about running performance is that the number one key is consistency. So now is a great time to really figure out your, your, your schedule, the schedule that you can, can keep and work on long-term. When are you going to carve out exactly the time? So you're always going to be able to get your run in, for example. Um, you have a little, maybe a little more flexibility now to sort that out and think about how it's going to fit into you as you go back to work or you, you have other work, uh, work approaches. So consistency, nailing that down is, is number one. And 
accepting that volume is really the biggest predictor of long-term success. So are you running as much as you can and staying healthy? So if you have the opportunity now, it's perfectly fine if all of your runs are nice and easy runs and you're getting the, that you're the volume to where it's sustainable. Now, of course, we, we want to be in chlorocorporating intensity as we can. And for those people who find themselves, for whatever reason, really crunched on time, because some people now with working at home actually find that they're going, like my wife, who's right upstairs, she works from home. She's always been a consultant from home. But what she's finding is that the other people she works with who are usually in the clinic are now suddenly wanting to meet. So she's just got constant meetings now. If you find you're now self, for whatever reason, swamped now in the middle of COVID-19 with those kinds of obligations, now may be a time to start figuring out how to do those higher intensity cross-training type sessions. And, and that's a whole another ball of wax we I don't have to start trying to peel into now. But uh, identifying those, those high impact, high intensity nuggets that you can put in. But the thing people have to really try to avoid now is saying, well, I've got lots of time. So now I can ramp up my training and taking it from this level to that level, thinking you're just going to squeeze something in and somehow gain permanent fitness because those are the people who are likely to burn out or get injured, right? So don't go too crazy with changing things at this time either. Just little nudges to where they should be. I saw, um, I, I forget who said it uh, on one platform of social media or the other. They all blend together nowadays because it seems like it's a constant stream of new updates. Somebody coined the term cover use injury, so specifically <laughs> yeah. for athletes that are finding themselves in this time to yeah work from home and now they can you know not commute two hours a day. So now they're increasing their running or training volume by a lot. So I, I thought that phrase was uh, pretty interesting because it seems a very 2020 thing to you know come up with a word or a hashtag for that sort of uh, thing. You mentioned taking an inventory, and I wanted to ask a follow up on this. Do you think? that it's important to have a sort of manual interaction, like literally writing down on like paper for that sort of stuff? Or is it something that people could use like an app on their phone or, you know, like a document on their computer for? Is there uh, maybe uh, advocating or a reason to advocate for actually writing something down on a piece of paper? Yeah, I, there is. It can be on a piece of paper. It can be just typed into a computer. But I do think that it's useful to have that in a single view place. Mm. So I use an app with the, all the people that I coach and there are sections for comments in each workout. And, and we can sort of run a report that brings up the comments in a stream, mm. but there's something different about having more of a diary for yourself. Right. Totally. And, and, and again, some people really like to write it down and that, that can help with them and other people may be typing in a document, but, but to have a diary sort of, sort of a single place and think of it that way as a diary, I think becomes really, really useful. The second thing that I would, the nuance or the nudge I would put into that is to say, rather than you speaking to the diary or just to the page to try and record stuff, mm -hmm. think of it more as you talking to your future self, mm. take yourself sort of outside of this and talk to yourself, mm -hmm. like kind of as your best friend, right. but to your future self, recognizing that you are going to read this in the future and you are going to be a different person. You're going to be a different person tomorrow. I mean, slightly different, not right. very different, but a little bit. Yeah. 
And so as you read back and you look back at this, you want to make sure that you've given yourself all the sorts of thoughts and, and, and subtleties and it's only for you. So you want to be able to express yourself well to your future self so that you can start to find patterns and trends. Mm. Have you found success in that for yourself or for athletes specifically? Like, could you talk maybe about a change that you have seen from somebody's mindsets, uh, especially now if people have that extra time to, again, sit down, take 10, 20 minutes to kind of reflect. Have you seen success for using some sort of method like that? In many ways. I've done this with classes that I've taught, for example. Mm -hmm. I uh, used to give, I gave extra credit one semester for uh, people just to go, to just go exercise. Mm -hmm. So they were to write, write down their exercise, what they did on that day and any thoughts they had about it and they, uh, and anybody they, that they were with. One of the things that was really remarkable that came up out from it that I swear almost I, must be everybody. I'm sure there was one exception, maybe, but hundreds of students all wrote, I thought I exercised more regularly than I do uh, until I had to write it down and make a diary. I didn't really realize how many days I would actually skip. Right. But then the other thing was that for them and for people I coach is the blossoming of their viewpoint. So as a coach, I get to get in there on every day and every comment and look at this. And I see the people who find the negatives mm. in what they're doing, just little things, right. just little, you know, almost reading between the lines, a little comment about something they pick up on the negative thing more than the positive thing and the people who go the other direction. And by being able to just ask them to look at it a little differently or suggesting a view that's a little bit different. I see over time their view morph mm. and change. And then when I start getting to seeing comments about the rain and weather were awful, but I had so much fun, mm. you know, whereas you go back six months and you see the rain and weather were awful and I just wanted to quit, but I made it through and I guess tomorrow will be better. Yeah, You see those changes as people reflect more and more. And sometimes it takes a nudge from a coach other times, though, I think a lot of people just see it for themselves as they're actually writing it down and looking back on it. So those are definitely changes that I have seen. The other thing that I've done, and I can think of one of my athletes in particular mm -hmm. who was really just getting in negative spiral type things. And I was actually correlating comments about niggling injuries mm. coming up. Anytime there was like a little progression of days where there was just more negativity, then yeah. suddenly something would hurt. Mm. And so I asked, I asked him to just do one thing. I just said, every day, could you just start your comment with something you're grateful for? That was it. We did it for two weeks and it was amazing, of course, seeing the mm -hmm. little things, you know, and, and then I said, okay, we've done it enough. Cause you know, I mean, they get, they get, does get a little old and a little bored. And I said, I've done enough. You can keep doing it if you want on mm -hmm. your own or whatever, but you know, don't feel like you have to do it anymore for me. He said, no, I want to keep doing it. It's been over a year now. Mm. For, personally, I love seeing those comments. But you know what? The rest of his notes, two different people, completely mm. different people. And injuries, he hasn't been injured since. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's great. And that's, uh, you know, 100% uh, N equals 1,000 peer-reviewed study right there uh, to just write down some notes and you won't get hurt. But I think that's a great reflection maybe in a sort of motivation for somebody to just try and, and you know, reflect 
write something down. We've had, um, you know, a couple other people on talking about that power of routine mindfulness and that positivity. And I think that's, you know, that's huge. And we, we see this in, you know, so many examples. And I think that's, that's a great point. The second topic that we had here was actually, you know, something that kind of naturally segues off of this. So you talked about a change you specifically saw in this athlete, right? So, um, versus a year ago, they were a totally different person. This second topic is the change in the sport of running. So I'm curious from the sport and maybe even the hobby side, how have you seen things change over the past 10 years? So when I wrote this out, I thought, oh, how have things changed, you know, since like 2000, then I remembered that it's 2020 and 10 years ago is 2010. Um, but yeah, over the past 10 years, how have you personally seen things change in the sport and the hobby of running? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I often come back to change related questions mm -hmm. with the lens of the more things change, the more they stay the same. So I have to be careful not to allow that bias sure, sure, totally sure. into my answer here. Sure. But I also think that that viewpoint is important mm -hmm. in that running is running. Right. Man, we became bipedal, what? Two million years ago, something like that. And something like that. We, we've been running, but we've been running a long time. Right. And and running is just something that we can naturally do, and we love doing it. Kids do it. You don't have to tell them to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, in a lot of ways, running has not changed. It's been our relationship with it, our mm. opportunities for it, our ideas of what it is and what it means to us and how we're viewed if we are one of those, you mm -hmm. know, a runner. So technology has changed, mm -hmm. right? Shoes. Okay. Sure. So that's, a, that, those are some really, really big recent changes. Sure. Even the past Honest. year or past month, it seems like now there's all these new things coming out. Indeed. No doubt about that. Um, I, I, th I think that the sport is changing in that there has been a blossoming of, of interest in longer distances. Mm -hmm. We continue also to see more women continue to, to get into and do well at longer distances. And so I think those are trends that I've, I've absolutely seen in terms of the actual, um, the hobby nature of it. Mm -hmm. There are more five K's. There are more short races. There are more fun runs. There are more things for people to get involved in with there. There are more things that are sort of family oriented, you know, bring your kids and mom and mom and daughters and dads and sons and whatever mm -hmm. sorts of friends. So all of those sorts of things are, are coming into it. But um, th the, the, and maybe the negative side of things that I have seen is the influence of, of money and mm -hmm. performance for, for, for winning and for gain for the company's sake. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, that's just, that, that's the ugly side of it. And so ugly, ugly side of uh, side of any sports, anything where money comes into it, you know, the Olympics have changed. Um, that's a whole different sort of totally. discussion because, totally. because people don't actually realize as, as, as how professional the Olympics were way, way, way back. Actually, mm -hmm. they haven't always been so, so amateur and then they changed an amateur and so on. Right. Lots of changes there, but, um, yeah, you know, so uh, full circle, the sport has changed, but it's still running. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the research 
side of things change. So again, starting your own lab in 2004, having, you know, well over a decade of experience there, have you seen some interesting sort of trends or changes since then? Yeah, well, absolutely. We, we've really gone through a lot of, of blossoming and growth of, of sports science research, people getting into sports science, people interested mm-hmm. in sports science. So when you look up, say, for example, if you just type in running or, or runner into a PubMed search for, mm-hmm. for peer-reviewed literature, and you just see the, the, the number of publications skyrocket, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we definitely have, have huge growth in the available studies that have mm-hmm. been published. Things like barefoot, the whole barefoot maximalist minimalist yo-yoing right. uh, have 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 come and mostly gone during that time. We've seen related things that are super important, like the importance of sleep, understanding what sleep actually does for us, the things mm-hmm. that happen during sleep. We've learned so much more about that, the impacts of sleep deprivation. We've had a lot of answers now in the questions about cardiovascular health in ultra endurance pursuits. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. was a concern. Um, A huge increase in the appreciation for the psychology as a trainable factor. Mm. And also also psychosocial um, impacts of of training, mind-body type connections. Uh, A wealth of new data in in sports sports relevant nutrition, Mm. right? Huge growths there. And I really think that that field is now really just starting to come into its own. Macronutrients, supplements. There's always going to be a lot of interest in recovery tactics. We have Mm -hmm. devices and measurements and, you know, that kind of, all of those sorts of of, uh, therapies. Uh, So all of these things have been coming along. what uh, uh well rec- data data availability mm. so with g- watches devices stride pods with strava with mm-hmm. garmin and polar and all of these we're getting more and more larger data sets over time mm-hmm. so in the last 10 years we've had more reflection on what do successful athletes do right we're able to actually mine into some of that data and of course then we, you know, we can't get out of this conversation without talking about genetics. There's been a lot of genetic approaches, a genetic association type research. Right. Um, those are the things that come to mind right away. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, the one thing that I think, uh, you know, the first thing that I thought of obviously was the shoes just because that's a contentious yeah. thing that people love to talk about now, but the nutrition side, I feel like especially for the ultra side, the, you know, friends I have, that do 50K through 100K through 100 mile or through, you know, 200 plus miler, these backyard races where you're running, you know, the four mile loop every hour and stuff. Um, even at current, you know, aid stations, there's potato chips, there's, you know, Coke and stuff like that. So it seems like even though maybe for the marathon specifically now that most major city marathons will hand out, you know, goo or, you know, another brand of gel that's becoming like normalized, but the ultra world, I feel like is still sort of like a wild west approach for the large masses. Maybe you have, you know, um, somebody like the Jim Walmsley's of the world that can run Western States and, you know, almost, you know, 14 hours flat. Right. And they're maybe figuring out dialing in, but that's always, what you get with that very top end of the sport. But what, what do you think about the ultra world specifically for maybe nutrition and the approach that, that people take now? 
we just don't know much about what goes on beyond roughly the marathon distance. Mm -hmm. We have some research looking at subjects that have been running, mm. you know, past three, four, six, 12, 14, 24 hours, but there's a huge amount we don't understand. And just as, as a couple of quick examples, mm -hmm. we, um, we have no idea why food palatability changes so dramatically mm -hmm. at the end of long races. Why is it that when you are completely glycogen depleted and have been for hours, carbohydrates, especially sweeter stuff, almost pretty much nobody wants to eat. We right. want fatty stuff. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense to just think, you know, as we just think about it, but there's a reason for it. Mm -hmm. We don't understand that. We don't, we don't know that. Similarly, just from the, 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 we're talking to about uh, on, on a stride channel here. What about mm -hmm. critical power? We sure. know that just within a couple of hours, critical power actually is coming down mm -hmm. and glycogen availability can mitigate that, that mm -hmm. drop in your maximal sustainable paces. So at the end of an ultra, where is that relative work rate for you? Mm -hmm. And does that associate with our understanding of fuel utilization. So everybody's familiar with low intensity is mostly fat and you start using some carbohydrate. And then there's sure. this point where you're more carbohydrate than more fat. And it's a percentage of your maximal capacity at that point. And that can shift with training all well and good when we're fresh and the, and the bouts are short and everything's right. working right. Do, how well does that concept even hold up at six hours, especially when we're glycogen depleted? We have no understanding of that. Right. So you're right. Wild West. And, and so this is anybody who's listening who is wondering where to go with their own research. If they want to get into this field, you've just, you've got an entire universe to start studying. Yeah. It seems like that's uh, the gold rush then. Right. Uh, so if we're talking about the wild Maybe. west and that, that, that could be, um, you know, one panning for gold in the riverbed, uh, trying to do more research. <clears throat> I find it, you know, hard to believe that people don't want to voluntarily run for 10 hours and then try and deplete themselves and then take part in research and then repeat it again a couple of weeks after. But, um, that's yeah. That's so interesting that it's still you know. I mean, it, it it makes sense when you when you think about why it's not fully understood yet. Even if you dive into the people who are already doing it, you're certainly not going to get somebody who's running a race to agree to, hey, let me give you your diet plan, and you're going to have to eat it this way. Right. It just doesn't work out, totally. you know. So um, there are there are significant challenges to this, but but I will say. We are at a point now where data availability could make this a retrospective reality mm. in that we do science in this, this way that is very appropriate for highly me mechanistic research and has mm. always been that the scientific method. It's been great. We change one little thing and you change one thing, you control it right, you attribute stuff, the outcomes to that one little change. And then then we discover that the reproducibility of research is in question. And that's generally not because anybody is fudging data, although it does occur, but it's usually because there was a difference between studies that we didn't appreciate that actually mattered. Right. So with massive data sets, we could get past a lot of that with machine mm -hmm. learning and artificial mm -hmm. intelligence coming to bear on it. And we and the data is growing, the data sets are out there especially if we have people do something like log their, in this case, eating, but we mm -hmm. certainly have training data. Right. But, but that's, but the big problem 
a lot of the healthcare industry is is coming to grips with this right now. And I think this is where where sports science needs to go and needs to get ahead of this mm-hmm. if they can. But I, I worry we're not really going to think that far ahead. We're going to stick mm-hmm. with the old school, change one thing sort of uh, approach. But if we can curate data, collect the data, mm-hmm. make the data available, the, the the monsters of the world, Google and Apple, have so much data sitting there. Right. Then then the big players like Garmin and Polar, and then the the somewhat smaller players like Strava, and then then all of the micro domains like like Stride. Mm-hmm. Man, could you imagine if we could somehow curate and bring all of that data together and mm-hmm. then throw our growing under, understanding of, of, of computational mm-hmm. um, artificial intelligence on top of that? I would bet that we could make more strides with the data that's sitting there right now today. We could make mm-hmm. more strides than we ever have in the entire history of sports science. Yeah. It's just sitting there. But 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 that infrastructure is is so fragmented right that uh, that's actually yeah this this last uh, you know kind of wrapping up part of this topic is what are you looking forward to in any of these subjects so even the you know the hobby of running the sport of running the research side what's are you know things that will make you look super famous 10 years down the road that you called it right now uh, here on the webinar well, I don't think anything is going to make me look look super famous. And if I called it, it's only going to be be a pure luck, right? Sure, sure. Um, none. Hey, we we know this from from Dan Gilbert's research. We look back ten years and we think we've changed a lot, and we and we knew so we learned so much, but we're not mm-hmm. going to change much in the next ten years. And I think scientifically here, it, we're just grasping at straws to think what's going to happen in the next ten sure. years. But I will say that that I think is the number one mm-hmm. uh, issue that sports science has to grapple with mm-hmm. if we're going to make substantial advancements mm-hmm. that the old the the classical way of of the scientific scientific method works beautifully for highly focused and controlled mechanistic research mm-hmm. it's always failed us when we come to interventional complex um performance related outcomes mm-hmm. but we now finally potentially have access to that sort of data but getting everybody to talk together and, right. and 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 curate the data and make it available is is the major challenge. So that is the frontier. Mm-hmm. Whether whether companies can actually get together to make it happen, I don't know. The other thing, though, that I really think that we we are coming to better understanding of, and it goes back to some of the psychology I mentioned, the sleep that I mentioned, these other things, is that we are getting the public and scientists actually to better understand that training is not a human body where we put in put in a stimulus and get an output. In other words, um, five by four minutes fast for me today is not going to turn out like five by, by four minutes fast for me a month from now, last month, or for another person. Right. That there are too many other factors, <clears throat> right? So right. understanding that, I think, can help to really move us forward. Now, those are broad um, broad concepts in terms of very the very specific ones. I'm interested to see where the shoe stuff, you know, shoe technology goes and how we mm-hmm. deal with that from a, a cultural level, really. Right. And I'm I'm a particularly interested in our us understanding more about what happens beyond the marathon distance. We have so much research, mm-hmm. really understanding the, those nutritional aspects mm-hmm. uh, out to the marathon distance. I want to know what's happening at six hours and and 
you know, and well beyond. Right. I think those are really, really important questions that were going to turn our view of how physiology works completely upside down when we realize that that it's a that's a whole different metabolic system running at 12 hours than it was at two hours. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, or even you know, 159.40, right? Just under two hours, something like that right? yeah. for, for a marathon. Um, one kind of follow-up on that, do you think that having a U.S.-based Olympics in 2028 in L.A. will push forward at least the U.S. side of sports science research? Do you think there'll be a little bit of a, uh, you know, kick in the seat of the pants there for, um, you know, trying to motivate some, you know, at least U.S. domestic based companies to try and put together a lot of stuff ahead of that um, on this one i'm i'm sorry to say i'm a half i'm a glass half empty sure. view because i think once i think in that kind of a scenario for a few reasons mm -hmm. what will happen is the blinders will come on uh -huh. and it'll all be it'll all be about what can we do to get that performance mm. you know i met with the olympics um, I'm going to try and avoid saying the, the country name, sure. another country's Olympic group for training in a, in a particular domain. Mm -hmm. And, and they made it very clear. Our one mission is medals, mm. number, number of medals tally period. Right. And, and, you know, okay, whatever, understandable, but that bigger view goes out the, goes out the window. Right. And um, so that, and it comes that also brings us back to the beginning of the discussion, why this time for a lot of people, opening up your view, I think gives us the better long-term mm -hmm. possibilities and outcomes. So in some ways, I think if we can get companies away, away from targeting medals, targeting that one performance, targeting mm -hmm. that optimum, if we can get them, get companies away from that and just say, you've got free time now play let's be creative mm. let's throw some people in one division of the company over there and just say like how can we really just help people right uh, you give people that kind of latitude and the creative juices start spinning the collaborations start working you start bringing ideas from different disciplines and fields mm -hmm. maybe even crowdsourcing some of this um this sort of thinking mm -hmm. then i think is when we're we can actually make big breakthrough breakthroughs yeah, super interesting. Uh, we have a couple questions that have trickled in, and uh, a couple people here also at the beginning said that they love your podcast and they're they're tuning in because they listen to. Um, I love the abbreviation here, uh, S O U P uh, soup soup soup. I I, I love it. Uh, I wish every podcast uh, could could get a you know as creative uh, acronym there, but you you nailed that one. Um, first one uh, here is from Leandro. And the question is, I'm curious, in the opinion of Sean, will this quarantine period really affect the performance of athletes in the next Olympics or world championships? So for 2021 and 2022, does this sort of period have a domino effect? What are some of the potential implications that you could imagine? I think that this is going to be a very individual basis and a, and a very approach based outcome. And by this, I mean, it still comes back to how individual athletes, individual coaches, individual team cultures mm -hmm. respond to this kind of scenario. If your coach panics about not being able to do this or that kind of training with you versus if your coach 
talks about it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Those are whole, those are very different scenarios. I think a lot of what is going to come out in terms of outcomes from this mm -hmm. is playing out in, in our perceptions of it. You have somebody who has the perfect training program for their body. Mm -hmm. If they don't trust that program, they're not going to perform well. Right. If they doubt the pro. So as people are dealing with the psychology of this, I think it's how the psychology impacts it. And that comes down to, to that culture. So what we're going to see, I think, are that is that the programs that could handle this psychologically, mm -hmm. culturally within the team, those are the ones that are going to have the surprise surprise breakouts. Right. Totally. Uh, next question here is Sean, are you running Palisades Ultra Trail series if not, if it's not canceled? Uh, small frowny face. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I had not considered it. So I had 200s and 150 that were canceled. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the next race that I have on the books is CCC in Chamonix on August 28th, which is my birthday. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that, but I decided, you know, I didn't want to try and then when those got canceled, try to put something into my calendar for the same reasons that, that we talked about when we started all, all of this, that now yeah. is just a great time to, to double down on the best long-term me. Mm -hmm. Some people uh, I, I've seen on social media, they try and run their distance for how old they're turning. It seems like that's a very convenient thing to do. If, you know, the race goes forward, you, you get to easily knock out, uh, you know, a, a good long run uh, to celebrate the birthday there. Um, Follow-up question here from Leandro. Sean, what do you think about HRV, heart rate variability, and do you use it with athletes you train? All of the science today, mm -hmm. and indeed the experts in a, the true experts, the actual scientists of HRV, will tell you this: that HRV is is useless for ninety nine point nine nine percent of the people who are using it. Mm. There's absolutely there's absolutely no um, evidence based reason. Mm -hmm. uh, to use HRV for anybody outside of a very few clinical scenarios. Mm. Uh, there, there's, there's no valid approach for healthy people or for athletes whatsoever. And I've, I've talked to some of those experts who just kind of giggle mm -hmm. that, that athletes are using this. A lot of people are making a lot of money on it. And, and the answer is no. For people that maybe don't know what HRV is and don't want to Google it right now, could you give a basic just kind of info from the, the scientific side, what the term refers to? Yeah. HRV stands for heart rate variability. When your heart beats, let's say it beats 60 times a minute, that does not mean that it beats once every exact second. Mm -hmm. It will beat at 0.9 seconds and then at 1.1 seconds. Then the, the sum for a minute turns out to be 60, but the time between beats is slightly variable. Mm -hmm. The heart rate is controlled by your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system, in addition to the sensitivity of the heart, the ion channels that are there. So there's a lot of adaptation that can also go, go happen, like say in clinical set scenarios. But the sympathetic speeds it up, the parasympathetic slows it down, and the balance between those two, in addition to the how the heart is responding and a lot of other factors, creates that, that slight variability mm. in time. So heart rate variability is the variability in that time. Now, 
they uh, can you can layer on a lot of mathematics. It's mm -hmm. not as simple as just the variation in that time. There are a lot of really high level mathematics that can be uh, put to bear on that. Uh, but the validity that those mean anything mm. has only been worked out in some very narrow clinical situations. Yeah, great, great, great answer. Uh, question from Mike here saying, training without racing gets boring. I'm an older athlete, age 75, who has been doing triathlons for over 30 years. My main goal is to keep going, which I identify with that goal 100%, just keep going. Um, do you have any advice for overcoming the aging process as the main goal is to keep going? Yeah, I, I really do. And I, I love this question. Who That was Mike? It was uh, Mike Shower. Mike. Thanks, Mike. I, I absolutely appreciate that question. I think that this is a question that everybody should be asking in, in their own particular way. The ultimate question really comes back for me to why are you doing this? To keep going, I think there's more to the answer really than just to that. And sure. if you dig in a little bit deeper, what is it that you get fulfillment from? Why this? Because mm -hmm. you could choose other things right. and you could choose to keep going in those. So why this? What is it about this? What is it that you're really doing this for? And I, I think if you can just keep probing that and then put it away and come back to it tomorrow and put it away and come back to it tomorrow, you're going to eventually settle into really appreciating what it is deeply you're after and what you get get from this. And without having a whole whole therapy session sure. to discuss this um, with Mike, I, I think everybody can eventually get to those places of understanding what they're really doing and why they're doing this. And and from that place you then find that it's not a question of of keep how do i keep going mm -hmm. it's it's how i can't even imagine ever stopping right. because i deeply understand that this is a core thing for me i once heard somebody say actually emailed to me say they wanted me on my coaching and they said i want you as, as my coach because i'm i need somebody to motivate me to keep running because i i'm afraid that if i stop running for any period of time, I'm going to fall out of love of running. Mm. That was a, such an easy response. It was, then you need to stop running. You need to stop running for a couple of weeks and find out if that happens. Because if that happens, then it's something else you love. Right. You know, do what you really do deeply understand that you love. Mm. So, Mike, as you get older, the con consistency matters a lot. So doing something every day, mm -hmm. but give yourself the love and permission to maybe just go for a walk one day instead of actually running, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Let the running come out of you, flow out of you and um, understanding why you, you do that and do it from a place of joy like a kid would suddenly start running. I, I think when you give yourself that love that and that permission, then you find uh, you find that continuing going is is simply like breathing. Right. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I think a lot of people um, probably relate with that. My, myself, I can speak personally, if a runner out there has ever been injured, you, you, you crave not only just running, but that physical activity, typically. Uh, but then when you come back to running, uh, you can find out if you really love it. If it's that one thing that you're just like, wow, I got to, you know, uh, I, I walked 15 minutes to the lake I got to run around it once 10 times, one minute on, one minute off, walk, run, then walk 15 minutes back. And that was my 
first run after you know taking some time off from injury and i was like wow that was amazing even though i averaged you know whatever minute per mile or you know whatever power number that that doesn't matter it's just being able to run so um yeah. i thought that's a great great answer there um do you have any other comments about that before this next question i don't think so maybe okay. mike or somebody will follow up if they have sure totally uh the last question that we have uh, submitted here before we go back to some of the other questions we pre-wrote, uh, have you seen any effect from trail running surface on ground contact time or some other um, quote unquote advanced metrics um, from the stride side, you know, will supply leg spring stiffness, ground contact time, vertical oscillation, but maybe, uh, yeah, just have you seen any effect of trail running surface on these sort of more advanced metrics? Uh, well, help me out here, if you will. Sure. Um, so, like the advanced um, metrics side of that question. What do you, What do we mean by advanced? So, so like maybe ground contact time, yeah. vertical oscillation for just people you you coach. Are there some things from the biomechanical side that you see on different trail running surfaces? Uh, is, oh. is is what this uh, question I assume means? Sure. Well, one of the so I think you guys can probably speak to to a lot of the, the really cool subtleties to that. But the one thing that I will say, especially this time of year, mm -hmm. that I'm coming into uh, coming into contact with with my athletes all around the world is that seasons are changing. Mm -hmm. So the people who were say in in the extremely snowy areas and they were running on pavement all all winter mm -hmm. are now starting to hit soft trails, mm -hmm. and they're like, I can't keep zone four because it's just it's so hard. Well, I'm squishing through mud versus having set all of these values being on pavement, right? Right, right. So, um, and undulations rather than flat. So, right. um, you know, there's a very broad view uh, way of answering this mm -hmm. is, is that, yeah, surface matters quite a lot here in addition to the actual undulations of the of the terrain, like rocks and roots and that sort of stuff. So it is important that you, you use your tools mm -hmm. as tools. You know, Goodell's law is uh, general generalized to, to simply say that once a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that when we're using values like zones and critical power, and we, we're using them as tools to inform what we do, right. and we're not just running to the number. Right. Totally. Totally. Um, couple more questions we have here. Uh, one thing that I really liked looking on your site, it said, steer clear of the smoke and mirrors pseudoscience. Where do you personally find your own information? And what should people be cautious of when looking for information to improve performance? Because as we touched on a little bit ago, as there's been this advancement, you know, from uh, you know, the next new super shoe versus this new nutrition that'll make you so much better. There's going to be people that might, um, you know, want, want to take advantage of that side of people looking for that information. So um, maybe just talk a little bit about steering clear of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Well, there's, there's the, the uh, funnel of sort of decisions in mm -hmm. this. The, the biggest one is if it sounds too good to be true or sounds too wacky. Obviously we want to make sure that we're, we're being extra critical of right. that. And number two is if this is the thing that some group knows, but the big establishment quote unquote, you know, of medicine or whatever 
just doesn't adopt or wants to throw out or won't accept or whatever. We hear that, for example, very specifically in say like the high fat, the mm -hmm. fat adaptation crowd. You know, that's, it's probably not true either. I mean, scientists are out there trying to find the truth. We don't right. have collections of people meeting in, in secrecy to try to like, you know, dupe anybody. <laughs> so you you start whittling it down from, from let's just be real here into then what can you really trust? And one of the things that was always important is always important in my, in my lab when we do our laboratory research is we never chase N of one. Mm -hmm. And by N of one, I mean publication of one. Mm -hmm. Studies of one are neat and interesting and that's fine. And we know they're usually not they're almost never the, the end of the story. We're always mm -hmm. going to find out when somebody does a study a slightly different way that, ah, we didn't really understand that facet of that first study. So now we understand this a little bit better and then a little bit better. We never go anywhere with anything unless three independent, that is non-collaborating labs have shown a thing. Then mm -hmm. we begin to trust it. And then we only trust it when it actually, when we can actually reproduce it in our own hands. Sure. So I think it's important to not chase the one-off studies that you hear. Mm. So you'll read an article that'll talk about a study that just came out and maybe this means X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Right then, just take it as interesting. Right. I think that's probably the best take-home message is that when you hear about a discussion of one study, which is so common in the general press about one study or even just a couple of studies, just take it as general information. Think, oh, that's interesting, but don't go changing anything just because, because of that. Right. Um, I get, of course, my information from... Uh, primarily from the peer-reviewed literature, but also from talking to people's insights. I just make mm -hmm. sure that I'm always recognizing that we're all wrong mm -hmm. to some degree. Mm -hmm. And as long as you appreciate that we're, nobody's ever completely right, then you also say, where are my biases coming into my appreciation here? So if someone tells you something that doesn't match with what you're thinking or you've thought before, make sure you're not knee-jerk rejecting it. And you're saying, okay, well, let's see how this, maybe this could be true. Right. And you're just keeping an open mind about things. So I think staying flexible, reading the peer reviewed literature is, is a good start, but I can tell you that a lot of stuff gets peer reviewed and published, you know, that, that isn't necessarily such high quality. So that's a long way of coming around to back, back to just saying it's really hard. I mm -hmm. get it. And those are the only pseudo solutions I have to answer. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Uh, Next question we had here was, can you talk about what you mean by coaching for the whole athlete because you're more than the sum of your runs? And this was another very interesting point um, I found on your, your website, but talking about coaching the whole athlete, you're more than the sum of your runs. You know, ultimately, why do we... Why do we do anything? Why do we run? Why do we do what we are doing? We're doing it in some ways for joy, mm -hmm. for happiness. We may be doing it to um, be healthier people, to overcome some genetic predisposition to heart disease because we want to be around for our great grandkids or something. Sure. But we have our reasons for doing it. Very few of us, I'd say almost none of us, run because we want to be able to complete a distance in a time. Mm -hmm. That's not really what you're after. If that's what you're after, it's probably something the more along the lines of you think that's going to bring you some kind of joy. Mm -hmm. And so if you appreciate that why we do the things we do, 
are for those those bigger purposes and bigger goals. And we have to accept and, and understand that that everything in our life feeds into the success of everything else. Mm. We're not compartmentalized creatures. Mm. And if we are fit, we think better, right? Fit, so our muscles release myokines, release chemicals that cross mm. the blood-brain barrier that affect our mood, for mm. example, that impact our decision-making, for example. These are massive things, and we all recognize placebo effects where the mind can actually manifest real physical changes mm -hmm. in, in the body and how the body responds to things. So yes, it was, it goes back to what I said before. We're not simply do these reps and sets, get that performance. It doesn't work that way at all. Mm -hmm. You are the more, more than the sum of your runs because you are how you sleep mm -hmm. and the impact of your sleep. You are how you think and how you perceive the world in your place in it. You are how you eat and that you're giving your body the right nutrients for uh, for the processes that it has to undergo. And you are your relationship to how you move mm -hmm. and how you move about. So you are much more than just those runs. I've never seen anybody have long-term health in life who hammers at runs. And the one thing that I really like to, to, to talk about and to say is simply that if you treat life like a race, you just might beat everybody to the finish line. Mm, that's great. That's another t-shirt one for you, I, I, I think. Um, one question we had here from uh, another person in the stride team was, if I still want to keep training for my mountain races, but all the trails are closed, can I use a treadmill to simulate uphill? What about downhill? Is it effective? Is there anything you've seen from you know the, the scientific side regarding this subject? Yeah. So... Certainly uphill is, is absolutely fine. The body doesn't see it any differently. The only difference would be the foot placement and undulations, mm -hmm. sure. right? Uh, getting over rocks, that kind of stuff. And the eye-body eye coordination of mm -hmm. running on uneven terrain. But otherwise, the incline, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. um, you can really get a lot of, of that great training there. And of course, then you also engage muscle recruitment mm -hmm. in, a different, in a different way that's appropriate for going up, like engaging the glutes more and so on. So absolutely use the inclines. Declines. You know, there, there's there's some treadmills go slight down, um, mm -hmm. some more than others. So you can do that, but none of them are going to get you the steep down. And there's no real way of doing that. Do not prop up your treadmill <laughs> on the back. That that's a nightmare and a disaster waiting to happen. Don't yep. do that. They're not made to do that. And but unfortunately, the thing is that that's a place where we get a lot of benefit for people who want to be trail runners that downs downhill eccentric loading, both for the skill of downhill running mm -hmm. and not break, not breaking a lot, learning to not break that is slow down a lot, but also, also that, uh, that uh, resiliency and durability of the eccentric loading. So there are things that you can do. You can do things like box stepping, stair stepping. You can do some loaded stuff where you're stepping mm -hmm. down, but you know, nothing is, is really going to reproduce that downhill running. So what you need to do is step back and not, and not suffer for the fact that you don't have this opportunity right now. Right. Just recognize this is it. This is what you have available now. Mm -hmm. Make the most of that mm -hmm. and, you know, and go for that and really relish and celebrate what you do have the opportunities to, to do and explore in new ways. And then just recognize that you want to add in a bit more slowly and carefully not to get injured when you are able to go back to those sorts of other modalities. Right. I have done one 
trail half marathon ever. It was uh, out in the, in the mountains, just, you know, about an hour drive from Boulder. And I had no problem running the pretty steep uphills on the trails. The thing that blew me away was trying to do the technical descents on the rocks. I stopped and walked. And then on the steep downhill, I could run, you know, 430 pace. And I, I was fine, you know, hammering running. But the skill and the technique that comes in there, that is a completely different sport, um, you know, w w when it comes down to practicing that. So I guess the, the other recommendation would be don't throw a bunch of rocks on your treadmill and try and like glue them to a treadmill belt and practice your steep descent. Cause that's probably a recipe for disaster as well too. But uh, it's amazing for, um, you know, people that like myself consider myself a regular runner trying to go to the trails and just practice that it's, it's so hard to do and it requires so much practice. So I have so much more respect after, you know, doing a couple of those first runs, I was like, Oh my Oh my goodness, this is just uh, totally, totally different. Um, we have one more question from our side, and then I've seen uh, two more questions uh, come in. So wrapping up soon, if anybody has any other questions, please feel free to send them our way before we wrap up. Um, the last question from our side is race, pace, or power-specific workouts are a big part of run training. How much of these types of workouts in terms of specificity should I do if I train for different distances? For example, in terms of percentage, is it the same for both 10K and ultra, or are there different optimal strategies for different distances? Yeah. Inherent in the question mm -hmm. is uncertainty. Sure. Is the, per the person who's asking is uncertain. And we all, most all of us have these sorts of questions, mm -hmm. which means it's coming from a place of doubt and uncertainty. Sure. So I think it is important to enter the answers and the solutions by recognizing that if you continue to carry a lot of uncertainty and doubt into your training and of what you're actually doing, mm -hmm. that can backfire and that can have a negative impact that can, that can detract from a lot of the training, mm -hmm. a lot of what you do. So, I want to throw that in there to begin with. That sure. It is important that you go with what you are trusting and what you feel is working for you in a time. Mm -hmm. And it sounds, it sounds hard for people to accept to say like, what do you mean if I just believe it and it's going to work? <laughs> Not a hundred percent, but a lot more than mm -hmm. most people think. Right. Especially when we're talking about the sprinkles on the cupcake, mm. because you got the cake You've got some icing with your volume, with the fact that you're doing some high intensity stuff. We're getting into an area here now where it's it's subtle changes and subtle differences. The second thing to recognize is there is never a perfect. Mm. You are never going to have the perfect plan. Get that out of your mind right now. Mm -hmm. That can open up space mm. for you to just let it be and just go with the decision you're making. Totally. Now, having said that, yes, there are differences. There will be different impacts. Some of it, though, is going to relate a lot to to you and what you're doing right now. You know, are you maximizing your volume? Well, that places certain amounts of fatigue and stress on, on limbs and legs already. Are you already running a lot of ups and downs, say, on your roots, where doing something like maybe hill sprints changes the dynamics of what you should be doing? So there are a lot of subtleties that go into the actual application for this. I would say there was a general rule it's a good idea to make sure that you're doing a huge amount of your training 
easy and comfortable mm-hmm. running. And then you are making sure that you distribute the your your other efforts across the range of your abilities. Mm-hmm. And that is you're sprinting sometimes, you're going for minutes of durations where you fit, would fatigue sometimes and, and, and tens of minutes and 15 minutes and 20 minutes where you would fatigue at times like more like tempo run type things mm-hmm. that you're doing all of that. And honestly, if you can just sprinkle around and work and play with fun and enjoyment in that, that, that arm, if you will, of the distribution mm-hmm. out on the side, you're, you're going to get yourself 98% of the way there and don't worry about the, should I do 5% in zone four versus 8% there and then 2% here? Sure. Keep mixing it up and play with it and have fun. And and honestly, you're, you're going to be good long-term. Totally. Yeah. Great answer. Um, last two we have here. Uh, this is actually a pretty fun one. This is from Jeremy. What is a common myth about training that you wish would go away? Yeah, good question. I'm hesitating so much because the my my immediate reaction is to go back to the thing I've already said now a couple of times, which is that input equals output. Mm-hmm. That input gives a predictable output that mm-hmm. you can do this workout and get that kind of result. Mm-hmm. That is just it doesn't even have any base. There's no basis for it whatsoever. And yet mm-hmm. it really is the foundation of things. Oh, okay. So yeah, I can come back to a, to a sort of a, a, a side tangential answer sure. then to that. And that is the myth of periodization. Mm. There honestly, the reams and reams and reams of, of studies that mention it, that comment on it, that are supposedly periodized studies mm-hmm. is monumental. And there's just no end to what you can read out there in the general press and general literature. There's absolutely no support for periodized approaches in endurance training mm-hmm. and really almost none in, in any kind of strength training mm-hmm. either. That's not to say that period that variation isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. We do appreciate that. Actual under actual periodized training. I wish I wish periodization would just go away. Yes. And for for people that might not uh, know exactly what that is, could you give a very brief definition of periodization from an athletic standpoint? Sure. And there are sort of a variety of nuanced definitions here, but sure. basically, it's a it's a programmed variation in structure of training with the intent of uh, altering or improving or pushing certain capabilities or capacities mm-hmm. in a way in a way that they stack on one another. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, one thing that immediately jumped to my mind regarding Jeremy's question was something like, uh, you know, people usually reference as beginner runners the 10% rule. Is that something that you might be able to comment on uh, not adding more than 10% to the next like weekly volume? So for somebody that, you know, runs 20 miles, they can't run more than 22 miles the next week. Yeah. The 10% rule works because at 10%, it's kind of an average of what can work under a lot of different scenarios. What that means is that it works perfectly for nobody, but it's adequate for almost everybody. Right. And so 
really the approach that I prefer is to simply say that we want consistency. If consistency is our goal, it means we need to continue running. We don't mm-hmm. want to get injured. We don't want to overdo things. And so consistency means means comfortably adaptable variation or comfortably adaptable progression. Mm-hmm. You be the judge about, about two miles, three miles, 10%, sure. 12%, 8%, 5%. 5%. You really have to dial into how you feel the progression should be such that you can keep that going. Mm-hmm. If you are progressing such that you progress for three weeks and then you have to take a down week, mm-hmm. that progression was too much. Mm-hmm. Learn from that. Take it. The, take the slope a little shallower for the next set. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Last question here from John. It says, Sean, as an older runner, I really appreciate your answer to Mike's question. Hello to both of you from Dublin, Ireland. Now that I read it, it's not a question. Um, but maybe uh, leaving off on, on one last question that I had, what gets you uh, I- excited for um, you know, doing all the things you do? Because we referenced earlier about having so many hours in the day. Is there anything out there that gets you really excited to keep producing you know, uh, from the podcast side, from the coaching side, from the, the teaching side, from running your own lab and research side? What, what is the thing that excites you? all those people in the chat room. It's knowing that I can take what I love and, 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 and help people just at least give people some, something to think about. So it, it's the people that I can, that I can support. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love it. It's always so entertaining. And I, I say always because we've been doing this for about four or five weeks, but now it seems like it's a regular thing for people to be tuning in and just listening and, you know, kind of absorbing that information, just being in that same sort of community and vicinity and everything too. So um, that's it for all the questions we had, Sean. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we could talk for like six hours um, and, and do some research about, you know, how critical power has changed after podcasting for, you know, for six hours versus um, all, all the other past research and stuff. If people want to find out more about you, about about the uh, Science of Ultra podcast, can you give us a little bit more information where to find more about you? The website is scienceofultra.com. My email is Sean, and I spell that S-H-A-W-N, at scienceofultra.com. And just typing into a web browser, Science of Ultra, will, will get you to those anyway. My Twitter handle is also at Science of Ultra. Awesome. Keeping things simple, consistent, right? I, I think is that good take-home message. And then um, anybody watching this or anybody listening to this will put all the links in the show notes in the description as well. So there'll be a easy ability to click. And I imagine Gus, uh, like I just checked the chat, he put the website in the chat. So Gus is always on top of it as well. Um, yeah, again, Sean, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This wraps up this next or th- this episode of the Stride for the Love of Running webinar series. If anybody has not listened to your podcast yet, I highly encourage people to go out there and listen to it. Um, it's it, it, it's a great thing. Uh, for now, we'll be back uh, later in the week with another episode, but uh, have, have a great rest of your day, Sean. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Gus uh, and Evan. And both of you, thank you for all that you're doing with Stride. I mean, I know you are part of a, a, a company and you have a device and you have a business side of things, but you're doing this also exactly that for the love of running and for the love of helping people to find ways to find greater joy in what they're doing 
and at the same time perform so much better because they have a certain metric that they can use as a tool. And so thank you for all the work that you guys do. Absolutely. Much appreciated. Uh, we'll be back with a, another episode very shortly. Bye-bye, everyone.